1: Welcome back to the show. Today, we have Oshin O'Connor. He's the CEO and co-founder at Recharge Payments. Oshin, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I I think what you guys are doing at at Recharge Payments is actually really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up.
2: Totally. So I grew up in uh, San Joaquin, California. Uh, Nice. Both my parents are originally from Ireland, so first generation. And
1: yeah. Cool. So you went to college. What did you take and why? Uh, well,
2: <laughs> I don't, I, traditionally, I was not a, a good student, so I didn't get into any colleges coming out of high school, uh, so okay. I went to community college. And originally, um, I focused on art and architecture. Okay. And then from there, I pivoted into business and economics, and then... I moved into teaching myself how to program. So kind of a roundabout way and ended up graduating
1: with economics from UCLA, but kind of multifaceted in a lot of different areas. Interesting. So what did, got you to shift into economics and then into programming? Um, Well, I mean, what I
2: loved about art and architecture was the idea that you can kind of create anything, right? You have your imagination and you can see where the world is going and what you can build. but what i learned especially in architecture and both my parents are architects Ah. is that it's just so slow moving um and it felt like if you're if you want to be innovative and you're a builder the the place to be was in software right and i just didn't know about it until later on in my kind of journey um in education And once i discovered it i I fell in love with the idea of building software products
1: very cool so you get out of university walk us through your career up into coming up with the idea for recharge and let's dive into that
2: yeah totally so i actually i graduated in like the worst time ever to get a job so uh in 08 you know during the economic downturn and uh the only job i could get was at uh deloitte consulting and i was kind of like on you know the consulting finance side of things um, and from day one, I just hated my job. It was like first day there, orientation. And I was like, how do I get out of this? Wow. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. Well, fair enough. And so you know, yeah, I you know, I, I probably don't make a good employee so too. So I, I I love my you know my manager and people there, but it was definitely not the right fit for me.
0: Uh, unfortunately,
2: no one else was hiring. And you know, coming from um, immigrant parents that kind of had very little, I promised them that I would stick with the job and you know for a couple of years and kind of get that on my resume so i told him two years and on the day i quit wow <laughs> <So> like, <laughs> that's awesome good for you man that's um, great. But, yeah i know right it was like it was, it was like a, that jerry Maguire moment where you, you quit your job and you're jumping up and down so um <laughs> uh but you know during that time um a couple things happened to me one i i met uh, like an early mentor that was okay. a a software entrepreneur and, you know, in the tech space in the, you know, late nineties. And so he kind of showed me what you could build and what you could create. And, you know, this was 15 years ago. Um, and there was, you know, tech, you know, tech startups were not that big of a thing, even in LA. Um, so I saw that kind of view. And so the first, uh, you know, also in that time I helped kind of grew and was heavily involved with a nonprofit that did, you know, microfinance in the developing world. And, through that, I saw a lot of the needs around, you know, the idea of, you know, crowdfunding and crowd mobilization. And this is like pre Kickstarter or just around the same time. Right. And so, like my first startup was actually leaving Deloitte to build one for the nonprofit space. Cool. Um, and it, it was kind of like the right, the right idea for time for crowdfunding, but completely the wrong market. <laughs> like wow. nonprofits were the were the the worst to to sell and market it to. Um, and you know, yeah. And so I did that for a couple of years. Um, and you know, it, it got to, let's say 15 people and it was profitable and it was working, but it was, you know, I think they call it a walking dead in the sense, like it wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, and so that's, I quit that, um, and kind of wound, wound that down. And then from there, I started to evaluate, you know, what I wanted to do next and you know what excited me and what worked and what didn't work um, the last time around. And there was kind of two things I came to is one, you know, you can't create markets, you have to choose the markets. And what I mean by that is like, there's going to be these bigger, you know, societal changes that happen. And the best thing is how do you harness those changes and and take advantage of them and build, you know, interesting problems uh, or companies that solve problems, right? That's actually really good advice yeah right like don't waste your time in shitty (laughs) markets
1: no you'd be surprised at how many and i've been guilty of it myself but you so no i think that's really good advice but keep going sorry so
2: yeah you know and i think um you know i love reading you know biographies and stuff and when you read a lot of biographies especially people from you know the robin baron age you see that a lot of people Had to try lots of different things, and they had to like find the right timing for the right markets.
0: Totally. Um,
2: and I think people oftentimes think these things are like you know this brilliant idea that comes out of nowhere, and like that's very rarely the case.
0: Totally.
2: Um, and so you know the other thing I kind of realized at the same time was, you know, as a person I was like fundamentally flawed, (laughs) like (laughs) as we all
0: are. (laughs) Okay, sure.
2: And like. You know, I was like, man, to build a great company, I would have to balance myself out. And, you know, I looked at my first kind of like failed startup and I was like, what I was really good at was kind of like a sense of product, um, you know, coming from that arts and architecture background and then later software. I had a really good sense of like, you know, opportunities um, and how to bring things together. Um, But what I wasn't great at was when something got to like 80%, I wasn't great at taking it to 100%. And in the sense that, like, oftentimes it's a different temperament of the person who can just, like, drive something uh, to completion. Sure. And so, you know, in that sense, I I found my uh, co-founder, Mike. And so we started working together, and he kind of, like, had the the opposite uh, weaknesses as mine. And so together, I always feel like we create this, like, you know, perfect human being, but, you know, separate, we're very flawed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So how did you guys Um, meet?
2: You know, it was funny, like, as like, you know, the tech startup scene was so small in LA and this, you know, even when we started working together, maybe like eight years ago and, you know, I started to do these barbecues just to meet people. And so I do a barbecue and, you know, I was actually living at my parents' house because I like didn't have any money. That's awesome. <laughs> and, like um and so i just met lots of people in technology and you know and i, I had it in the back of my head that i would need to find the right pieces for my next okay. business for my, my next ever and and i was searching for that and then i i uh, met my co-founder and i was like you know very early on i was like wow this is the guy you know and you know it's probably yeah like anything relationship wise is when you meet the right person you, you just get that subconscious feeling and you just go for it
1: sure so how did you guys come up with the idea for recharge and what exactly is it or, or or actually what was it when you launched and how has it evolved over time let's dive into that after
2: yeah totally. um well i, I think first is we chose the market right so we chose c commerce we thought that was like we spent a long time evaluating what were the big macro trends and at the time, this was eight years ago, there was two big trends that we thought were interesting. And one was commerce and the other was crypto. Um,
0: sure, interesting. And
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely, I bought a good number of, crypto, uh, of Bitcoin back then, but I should have bought more like everybody. Um,
0: sure. And
2: you know, when we got, so we chose the market and then we, you know, we wanted to understand what were the interesting problem sets. So we kind of, we decided actually to start a development agency. Um, and to launch lots of different products, and the idea was how do we create fast feedback loops on like what is important in this market right okay. and so we we actually launched uh six different products before recharge, and recharge was the uh, the sixth product, and it just took off like crazy wow and um yeah, it was kind of a crazy year uh, that was about a year process of just lots and lots of velocity around you know building things launching them trying to sell and market them and it was a very low ego process in the sense that um if something didn't hit the metrics that we wanted or the velocity uh we just scrapped it you know and you know i think people oftentimes ask me like what how do you know when you have product market fit and like as somebody who's had a lot of products that haven't worked out you know you just know it's just like hitting a vein where people are screaming at you for more of it um that's right and Kind of what was early on the impetus of the idea was that we started to see more and more merchants, one of this ongoing relationship with the end shopper. Right. And, you know, this was at the beginning of kind of like Amazon subscribe and save and subscription boxes. And we realized like there was no platform that kind of enabled you to run these programs and then to grow these programs. Um, and so that was the beginning, you know, and when we first launched, uh, it was super basic. You know, it literally was like a web form that you could throw up on your page and collect credit card information. And then we would manually charge people's credit cards and create orders in their e-commerce store. So we like, <laughs> we completely hacked it MVP yep. and just to see how how it would be reacting to market and right away it just took off. Um, so that, that was kind of like the beginning. And That's then throughout a- the last, sorry, go ahead, yeah.
1: No, I was going to say, that's actually amazing and actually really good advice because I think a lot of startups start out exactly how you just mentioned it, where a bunch of stuff is manual. Not everything has to be automated out of the gate, especially to validate an idea. And I think that's actually really good advice for people listening because like, why why automate something that you can manually do at the beginning when you don't have a ton of traffic or customers? Because it's... uh, Easier to shut down a company that, you know, you've only spent maybe weeks or months on than if you spent two years building something and then people hate it, right?
2: Yeah, 100%. Like, you you get, like, a sunk cost fallacy for anything you ever put out in the world, you know, and, like, where you want to hold on to it, you want to stick with it, and it's very hard for you to let go. Um, And, you know, I think also people, what I've realized is, like, if you really have product market fit, oftentimes you need very little. Yeah to get that momentum, to, to charge a customer money. And if your thing is gonna always rely on the next feature or the in your mind, it's probably you don't have that fit, right? Because yeah. it shows yeah, nice. that you're not unique enough in the world um to get started, you know. So um sure. but yeah, it, it was crazy. I mean even the, the sign up flow was not automated. So it was my uh my Google calendar, I had like a Calendly link with my calendar and people would just set up time. talk to me and and literally i was doing 20 calls a day just setting people up on the system manually in like php my admin and then i would code at night based on people's feedback of what needed to be automated so a little Uh, crazy that's (laughs) amazing though (laughs) that
1: yeah that's that's what it is right especially at the beginning especially when you're bootstrapping right
2: yeah yeah exactly right it's 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 super focused, scramble, whatever you need to do to get to the next step,
1: you know? Um, And yeah. Sure. So how has ReCharge evolved into what it is today? Yeah. So I
2: think, you know, once we launched ReCharge and it just like, it was like hitting a vein um, and we knew there was something there, we decided all the other products that we built, we actually sold them off. So they became like our seed money. That's um, smart. Yeah, I think we were lucky. They were generating some small amounts of revenue. Um, and, you know, so we sold them for like 250K and that was kind of like our seed round.
0: Nice.
2: And, you know, what we realized early days was like, you know, the the e-commerce space was so young and the, all the stores were really small that it was really about how to make this thing turn key and ease of use, right? right. How do people just get going? And so for let's say the first two years, that's all we did was just like, we really focused on that and how to make it so that people could get this thing set up within minutes. Right. Right. Um, And then we started to see a shift in the e-commerce market where basically people started to get bigger and bigger um, and people start to value customization. Right. Uh, And so that's when we made kind of this, I wouldn't say pivot, but we started to move into becoming a pure API first platform um, and you know, that, that was a, the current wave that we're writing right now is where, how do we provide kind of the building blocks for people, one to start these programs and then two, to grow these pro, uh, subscription programs. Um, and so, and then in that period of those, like two distinct phases, we went from, you know, you know, three people in an apartment to, you know, 600 people plus, uh, all remote, um, wow. in the company. And then we went from. You know, that 250K of uh, seed investment from some of those apps to, we did, I think, you know, our first, you know, institutional round um, a year and a half ago. And then we did another one, uh, you know, half
1: a year ago from today. Well, congrats. That's really great. That's awesome. Thanks. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into the product and how does somebody actually get started i i know it's hard when it's not visual but how do you explain it to somebody um when you're not in front of a computer
2: yeah totally so i mean at the core of it is we enable subscription programs for physical products so okay. you know think about you know subscribe and save or subscription boxes or memberships or whatever it might be um and we service e-commerce merchants right mainly merchants in a digital manner
0: um
2: and so when we're enabled on basically on their site the end shoppers can then buy these products on subscription and then we provide all the tool sets where their their customers can manage those products right gotcha um yeah and so we and then we kind of have like a turnkey you know so like you know, the fancy word today is low code, no code, but yep. <laughs> like a lot sure. of it is just like, how do you, how can you, how can a non developer set this thing up and be able to customize things up? Yeah. And then, you know, then we provide it for developers, um, all the APIs so that they can fully customize this thing. They can feed the data, they can feed these things into their other products or other, the rest of their tech stack.
1: Right. Okay. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then, um, obviously, Do you maybe want to cover um, cost quickly or how you guys monetize the platform?
2: Yeah, totally. So we're completely, we're almost like a utility company in the sense that we just charge a, you know, set percentage fee on whatever flows through our pipe. So the the more, you know, more money that our merchant processes, the more, you know, we have our percentage and we take a cut. And so it was always a kind of a beautiful model in the sense that we're completely aligned with our merchants. And so as they become more successful, we become more successful. Um, and, we, you know, at one point we had like a plan, but we we scrapped it because we wanted to make it so that the barriers of entry for as many merchants as possible could start using this and become successful.
1: No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess like with server costs and this stuff going way down, it, it makes sense that you guys went the way you did. Fair to say?
2: Yeah. Yeah, That that and also like we just saw like, You know, part of our marketing and go to market costs are supporting, you know, tens, you know, tens of thousands of small guys that we might only break even or make marginal amounts um, as a way to kind of enable
1: stores. Got you. Okay. And then what's the migration process like to actually move my company to recharge?
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, you know is it as going to the website for recharge and, you know, choosing your platform and uh, getting going, right? Like, it's pretty simple. If you have existing subscribers and merchant, you know, customers, we can easily migrate those over. So pretty, pretty simple process.
1: Very cool. So uh, I'm curious, you, you mentioned you bootstrapped this thing into, and then eventually ended up raising money. What advice do you give to people and, And maybe some stuff that you've learned along the way, building a bunch of products because you've obviously been successful. It can be really challenging bootstrapping, but what advice do you give people, especially maybe during some of the low points?
2: I think first is you have to really want it, right? Like you have to like, understand why do you, are starting a company? Why are you building this product and this market and for this customer? So understand those things too, is like, I firmly believe, like, choose the right markets, and okay. if something is not working, don't keep on trying to go down the same path. Like, switch it up. Like, you have to like the quicker you can move into product market fit, the better, right? Um, yep. And so usually that's where I see a lot of people either they've chosen the right the, the wrong market or they've put, chosen a problem set that's just not deep enough, right, and differentiated enough for them to go after.
0: Sure. Um,
2: you, you know, I think for kind of bootstrapping or non-bootstrapping i mean i've always felt like you know money's a good servant not a good master and so just understand like why you're raising money and what you're trying to accomplish and you know i think the beauty about especially earlier on your career of bootstrapping a company is that you're not a lottery ticket at the end of the day the way a lot of the VC models work is like you know they, they invest in you know 50 companies and out of those 50 companies like 10 gets a series A and then, you know, one gets into a series B. Right. And so right. I, I personally never wanted to be a lottery ticket. Uh, now, you know, the caveat I would say is the fundraising environment is so good now that people can take secondary at early stages. So maybe there's less lottery ticket in this nowadays. But, uh, you know, I kind of always wanted to create my own company and control it early on. And then the last thing I think I always think about, there is no art without constraints and like, that's something they always teach you in, in art school and, you know, so you have to figure out what are the constraints to the problems that, that you're going after and the solution you're, you're going to provide so that and try to focus that as much as possible to validate, hey, is this going to be a, 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 a business or not?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's actually really good advice. Um, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on roadmap because it can be really challenging to obviously you're getting requests from. Uh, your customers or potential customers. And then obviously you have a vision for where you want to take the product. How have you managed that over the years and what advice do you give to people? Because I think that's one of the hardest things, especially bootstrapping a company that I've found.
2: Yeah, totally. Well, I think like you have to deeply listen to your customers, but this is not just like, it isn't your customer's job to describe the solution. Right. It's their job to describe the problem and deeply. And what are they trying to accomplish? Right. And so like, you know, there's the famous like Henry Ford quote, you know, he said like, if I listened to customers, I would have built a better buggy. Right. You know, (laughs)
0: like,
2: like, so I think that's one is like, if you truly deeply understand your customers, then you can know the sequencing. Right. So you can know like what needs to come next to drive the most value for your customers. Right. Sure. Um And so I think that's a big thing is like that deep understanding and then the sequencing and then I think people don't talk about this enough, but I feel like a lot of startups really drown in opportunity, right? Like there's just too much they can do. yeah. And so they try to do it all and they don't actually stay focused and provide the, do the right sequencing to, sequencing to get the momentum
1: within a given problem area. Right. Um So yeah interesting i i agree with you a hundred percent and it's interesting that nobody talks about that so how did you learn that or figure that out is it trial and error or or what made you come to that realization um like sequencing yeah or because i or or like mallet because your comment about basically taking their problem. And then you coming up with solution, I think most people are just like, Oh, you want this feature? I'll build this feature. It's like, yeah, but that's maybe not exactly what the customer needs, right? They want a solution to problem X, but they might not tell you how to, like, you don't want them to tell you how to solve X, right? You want them to just say like, you know, we really want to be able to do this thing. And then it's up to you as software to say like, okay, we're going to solve it like this does that make
2: sense yeah. yeah yeah it makes sense totally like yeah like you know i think you know in my previous startup like i built all the features of the customer's asked, and they didn't go anywhere right yeah, <laughs> so like i've done that too, I, yeah. I, yeah right like i realize that you can do a lot of waste because of that totally and that there's something underlining like you know there's like the jobs to be done framework which is quite popular now um but back then what like i first read about it, i was like holy crap this is like it like you have to underline what is like the underlying job that the customer is paying you money to do. Right. And what are they right. trying to achieve? And then tackle that. Right. And then from there you start to, you need to be very careful of prioritizing of like what actually unlocks the next most value for your customer and realizing that like most things are like very marginal, right. right. Um, that, that you can build out, you know, like, you know, like, you know, like an example is like we just rolled out, you know, in the last six months, user permissions, right? And like right. people asked us for years for user permissions and it's actually very important and there's a really rational use case for it. Like, you know, people want to have, you know, customer support reps manage a lot of things in the recharge platform, right? And they don't want people to have access to things like discounts, <laughs> right? Sure. And, you know, but we never lost a customer because of user permissions and we never got a customer because of user permission. And none of our customers ever made more money than with with user permissions, right so like that was one where like high demand, but does it actually move the customers' like core job that they're you know paying us money to do? no, now we rolled it out because we got to the point where like as we started to deal with bigger and bigger merchants, it actually did become a requirement to do business right and you know it got to the point too where existing merchants were like you know, you have to still do these things too. You can't just say no to people all the time forever. Right. So, right. That, you know, so that's, that's a little bit of the balance. you can't be talking about any of this stuff. So.
1: It's interesting because it's all about timing, right. And when it fits into your roadmap and your growth strategy, right. Because obviously if you would have added these features years ago, before you had some of these bigger merchants, it wouldn't have really made a big difference, but now it's making a difference. And I think, adding it into a roadmap and your growth strategy, I think people forget about that second half a lot when trying to plan their roadmap.
2: Oh, 100%, because so much of this stuff is like, how do you get momentum to build momentum, right? Totally, like, like, like It's like a snowball effect. And so it's like the quicker that you can speed up the momentum and in the right direction of where you want to go, the better. And so like, you only have so much you know you can actually build or do and so you have to really be strategic and i think that's like that that question sequencing is so important and the problem is like a lot of times people do it um either people don't have the full perspective of what's going on in a business and so they kind of give you advice on what you should do right which is like you know probably a lot of investors are like that because You know, They're not running your business, they're not in the day-to-day, so they don't have the full context to understand the sequencing, right? Or even advisors are like this, too. And so you kind of have to, like, you know, with these things, talk to a lot of people, but also, like, have, like, a healthy skepticism, right? Because only you know the best sequencing because you have the best contextual awareness of what should come next that will drive the most value.
1: Interesting. Totally. Yeah, no, that's actually really good advice. So you touched on it quickly. But you you have a basically a remote workforce. How did you decide to do that early on and how is and what are the pros and cons and advice you'd give for having people all over the globe?
2: Yeah, totally um so I think a couple things first like you know we've always had this like m- mantra that like you know make our customers successful, make our team members successful right and the success of everyone involved will mean that recharge will be successful right so it was very much a like alignment around value right and we just felt like the type of people we want to work with and, and ourselves as well like we wanted to be able to kind of work wherever we wanted to be in the world right, right. and we kind of wanted to create that like work life or like how that fit, right and you know i'm a perfect example is like you know i love like you know coding and working on things in the middle of the night Right. And, you know, in the traditional oh. environment, that's just not appropriate. <laughs> like an yeah, office fair People start to ju- people start to <laughs> judge you if you don't come <laughs> into work till 12 o'clock. <laughs> yep. Nope. You know, fair enough. Yep. but in a re- remote environment, like no one judges you. Right. Like everyone just judges you on the output. Right. It's a, it's a very, very much a meritocracy where people are judged on the best ideas and output. Right. Um, yep. And so I think it just resonated with us early um, as well as. You know, for us to be able to compete for talent and for great people, um, we were based in L.A. And there was just like a lot of corporations. And, you know, you have Google and Amazon, all these other corporations that have large offices here. And so it felt like we could differentiate ourselves, in, a, you know, for that global talent pool. Um, and by going remote by default, you know, a lot of companies, you know, not especially with COVID, have provided remote options. But the reality is you can't have like a office culture and a remote culture. It's one or the other. And what I mean by this is, is like all the senior people are going into a room and having a zoom, they're going to forget to zoom or bring other people in, or they're going to turn the zoom off. And when the meeting's done, and they're all going to talk to each other. Right. And they're going to socialize and there's going to be a group of people that are just left out of the mix. And so we committed very early on, like, Hey, we're just going to do remote um, by default. And, you know it's just gonna be the life that we want to live and also be able to get the talent, a bigger town pool
1: no makes total sense and i also think too when you want people to be creative or code they need to be the most comfortable whatever that means to them right and if that's working nine to five monday to friday fine if that's working some of that working through the night fine like do you really i never understood like if it's Monday and you need something Thursday, why do you? Why do people care when it's done between Monday and Wednesday? Right, as long as they have it for Thursday, does it really matter? Like I, that never. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just, I don't know. <laughs> and but, you know the fu-
2: and, and, and the funny thing is too is like in an office culture, people judge things that are not output related often. Right, like, totally. they judge like how nice somebody is or like when do they come to work and when do they leave work. And when you're remote, all you see is that output. Like, did he get things done Thursday? Yeah,
1: totally. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like just because you sit at a S9 to 5 doesn't mean you're working, right? Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> interesting. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think it'll co- kind of continue. So, I, I'm curious then, you guys have been at this for a number of years now, you raised some money after you bootstrapped this thing, what actually wanted you to actually decide to to start raising money?
2: Yeah, a couple things. Um, First is, like, the business was growing so quick. Um, Like, every year, we were doubling and tripling in size.
0: Congrats, that's awesome. And,
2: yeah, it was great, you know? And I think, at a certain point, we realized that we were starving the business, right? We need to raise money to reach the potential of the market, right? Yeah. Two is that we realize, as being the market leaders in our sector, that, you know, having the momentum and having a lot of money on deck would allow us to do uncompetitive things, right? Uh-huh. And what I mean by that is we could play a different game than other people due to our size and our, our moment and our cash balance. And I think that's something that, like we started to see, you know, not people in our space, you know, in our, in our direct industry or competitors do, but like in the broader whole. And we just saw how powerful that is, right? To be able to play different games than your competition, and so that's why we decided to do it. You know, it was to lean in and take advantage of the market.
1: Interesting. No, I I think I think that's really smart and and makes a lot of sense, right? So I'm curious, without you know, like talking about anything that you're you're not going to release, but like, where do you guys go from here? You raised a bunch of money. You have people kind of all over the world you're obviously doing really well how how do you guys kind of get it to the next level or, or what does that potentially look like
2: yeah totally so i think first is like we're early days in commerce right, right. like you know COVID's accelerated a lot of user behavior it's accelerated a lot of these merchants right um but what it becomes is tbz right and i think you know you know anyone that looks more than a year out in this market probably is looking too far out because of just how quickly things are changing, right? So I think one is we're always going to be very much glued to what the customer needs, how to move the needle for our customers, make them more successful, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, I think we're going to be very much leaning into, you know, subscription commerce. Like it's a category that's just growing every year quite rapidly and making sure that we stay as the market leader. So. I think you know. We're, overall, we're a very competitive, paranoid group, <laughs> like that wants to push things <laughs> forward to make it great. So yeah, we'll just continue to do that.
1: no very, very cool. So, I'm curious to dive maybe a little bit deeper into some some of the developer stuff. How does or what advice or how long does it take to actually get up and running with uh your API?
2: Yeah, totally. So. You know, right now our API, you know, probably has hundreds of millions of API calls a month. Um, You know, we have, you know, thousands of developers who are actively built things on top of it um, and are working on it. And so, you know, one of our big initiatives always first was to kind of go API first, right? How do we provide the best building blocks for developers to build these new commerce experiences on top of us? Right. And so and, and you know it came from two is like while we were running that you know agency in commerce and also being developers ourselves we just kind of learned what developers needed right so very much it was like you know comes down to the actual platform and apis themselves and what that is two is like what is the documentation right and treating the documentation as its like own family and pro- product in a lot of ways and then three supporting it right like having great developer support via slack channels and elsewhere right and so I think, you know, for us, a lot of commerce is starting to get um, more sophisticated and it needs these APIs and these tools. And so we've put a lot of investments in there to kind of support developers and be the best platform for them to, to work off for uh, subscription commerce.
1: Sure. No, that's cool. You guys also will help people find an agency or tech partners. Do you want to talk about some of the partnerships and, and how uh, customers can leverage those?
2: Yeah, totally. So, you know, like we know, like whatever kind of turnkey tool sets that we provide to the merchants is like, there's always going to be that next level of customization they need, right? Right. And so, you know, we build out these great building blocks for developers, but a lot of people, especially in commerce, don't have in-house developers. They have agencies. And so we've provided through, you know, the hundreds of agencies that we work with. I think we have maybe over a thousand agencies in the program is kind of like, one the support and training around our apis and tool sets but two is we also provide matching between you know merchants and agencies to kind of solve their needs as well
1: right got you okay no that's very cool you guys also have put together a pretty good learning resource library blog and podcast do you want to talk about um why you think that's so important
2: yeah totally well i mean. As like as a developer product person at heart, like oftentimes like I don't really want to talk to anyone. <laughs> <You> know, like <laughs> I just wanna like I just wanna get somewhere, start, you know, roll up a sandbox account, start playing around and building things and trying them out, right? And right. so, you know, I think we've always you know, we're always striving to do that more and more so that, you know, people can just use recharge, right? And have the education materials. I also think another thing that's great about this stuff is like you know, especially running an agency, you're so busy. You don't really know what should be built or how things should be set up. And so the more that other people can kind of show you the building blocks and then teach you like, oh, here's what some best practices or here's how you should do things, the the quicker you can get going, the more successful you can be, right? And so there's nothing worse than like kind of like not, you know, going to a new project or new area and like having to look at a new set of APIs and having no like foundations or, you know, to get going, right? And so we've always tried to support Uh, developers and agencies as much as possible.
1: Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing that I've never seen before that I thought was really cool that you guys do is you also have a second blog around culture. Why do you think that was so important and why did you guys launch that?
2: Yeah. You know, I think, well, first is like, I always, feel like culture has to be binary right it has okay. to actually mean something and it has to be like what people what decisions people make when no one else is watching and no one else is judging <laughs> right. Right? No, it's, like, fair. Yeah. it's like the operating system <laughs> and i felt like a big part of that is trying to polarize interviews and who who wants to work at your at, at your company and who actually you hire and who actually stays in the process because like you know, especially in this world, like we can all do so many different things. And the question really is about fit and alignment, right? And so the more that we can be transparent about what we value and who we are, the more that we will either be the right place for certain people and they'll all they'll gravitate to us, or we'll be polarizing when people will be like, Man, I really don't want to work with those guys. I'm not applying there. <laughs> you know, like right, that's right, what you yeah. want. <laughs> and so I think it just saves everyone a lot of time if you do that up front.
1: No, I a hundred percent agree with you. So obviously you guys have been doing this remote thing. It's been successful and and you have a good culture. What advice do you give to others that are going to basically either want to embrace this because, you know, as we hopefully come out of the pandemic, um, to actually keep some people remote or, or maybe a bit of a hybrid model. What advice do you give to people?
2: I mean, I don't know. I I think. I haven't seen the hybrid model really work, especially at scale. So yeah. I think choose which one you want, right? Do you want to build a rec- remote culture? Do you want to build a office culture? Right? Yeah. I think too is like, you know, with anything with culture is like being opinionated choosing like what you stand for and what you believe in and, you know, using that as a way to hire people and fire people and promote people and, um, and don't feel shy, you know, like just because someone's super smart and talented doesn't mean like they're going to be the best fit at your, uh, your endeavors.
1: I actually think that's, that that's really good advice. So I'm curious, is there any other advice that you would give to entrepreneur maybe early on when they're bootstrapping? Because sometimes it can be terrible for lack of a better term for it. And how did you kind of press on and, and what made you, you know just kind of keep seeing you know where you wanted to be cuz i think that's really challenging sometimes
2: yeah totally you know one of the best pieces of advice that i ever had was like to reach out to lots of people and try to get mentors right and try sure. to get advisors sure and you know i think we've constantly like my co-founder and i have constantly done that is like if you're going down a path and you've never gone down that path before find out who's gone who's gone down that path and learn right. from them and it'll just, like, you'll, it'll give you a map of what you need to do, right? And you just won't make the same beginner mistakes. And it'll just accelerate things. So, like, finding those people that accelerate you is going to be the key, you know? And, like, you know, people are always like, well, those people don't live in my my town or my city and everything. And, like, you know, when we started, it wasn't a huge tech thing. And we didn't really know anyone. And, honestly, all we did was just hit people up on LinkedIn. And we just yeah. offered to pay for their time. And we just told them, we're like, hey, we're just some young entrepreneurs trying to figure this shit out. And you know what? The vast majority of the good people were like, love to talk, love to help. Totally.
0: you. Totally, And it's totally. like,
2: it, it always surprises me how few people do that, right? And yeah. like how much that provides the advice and mentorship that like kind of defines like their whole career and how they make decisions.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting because anytime I've ever got asked that, I, and it sounds so stupid to say, it's like anything I've ever gotten in life, I just asked. Sure, I've been turned down more times than I could probably remember, but majority of people will genuinely help out as long as you don't ask for like a hundred things and you try to be respectful, right? If you're like, can I pick your brain for 15 minutes and I'm, or buy you, like most people will be like, yeah, sure, no problem, right? But if you're like, can I spend four hours of your time and you have to drive four hours? They're gonna be like, sorry, it's not gonna happen, right? Totally,
2: yeah, I mean, that's the thing, it's like, just ask. And you know, it was funny, like we would always offer to pay people, you sure. know, on LinkedIn. Yep. And I don't think anyone ever took us up on that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, but it it showed like, it showed like, Hey, we're not trying to waste your time totally. and we value it and we just love your help um, and your advice on something. And yeah. So it's super simple.
1: No, I, I think that's really good advice, but we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about recharge and anything else you want to mention?
2: Yeah, yeah. So to get more information, uh, just go to rechargepayments.com. And if there's any way I can ever help you, uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Cool. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thank you.